You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. NSA, yes, NSA, has some privacy advice. Interpol offers its take on where cybercrime is going during the time of the pandemic. Iran's oil rig is getting clever with its data exfiltration. The FBI would like to know when you're finally going to move on from Windows 7. Like, come on, people. Joe Kerrigan looks at pesky ads from the Google Play Store. Our guest is Bobby McLernan from Axonius on how federal cybersecurity is particularly vulnerable during the shutdown. And a not guilty plea from one of the three alleged Twitter hackers, along with some notes on how whoever done it, done it. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, August 5th, 2020. The U.S. National Security Agency has released an advisory on the risks associated with the geolocation data many systems and apps routinely collect. Quote, location data can be extremely valuable and must be protected. It can reveal details about the number of users in a location, user and supply movements, daily routines, user and organizational, and can expose otherwise unknown associations between users and locations. The agency's recommendations are addressed in the first instance to government personnel, but they're presented as applicable to anyone concerned about privacy, turning off location-sharing services, give apps minimal privileges, set browser options to prevent use of location data, turn off advertising permissions, and even disenabling features that track lost devices. Plain text usernames, passwords, and IP addresses for more than 900 pulse-secure VPN enterprise servers are being shared on a Russian-language hacker forum, a ZDNet investigation has found. All the compromised servers were running firmware vulnerable to CVE 2019-11510. The forum to which the data were posted is frequented by ransomware gangs. Those gangs include, ZDNet says, R-Evil, also known as Sodinakibi, Netwalker, Lockbit, Avadon, Macup, and Exorcist. All maintain a presence on the unnamed forum, and they use it to recruit both developers, effectively gang members, and affiliates, that is, customers. The data were dumped without any fees attached. Organizations using pulse-secure VPNs should update their systems. Since VPNs are especially useful in remote work, they should also look to the security of their sheltered at-home workforce. Interpol yesterday released a report on cybercrime trends observed during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
there's been a shift in targeting. Initially, individuals and smaller organizations were the preferred targets, but more recently, large companies, government agencies, and infrastructure have been the focus of threat actors. Interpol makes three predictions with respect to cybersecurity during the pandemic. First, we should expect the increase in cybercrime to continue, at least for the near term. Criminals will continue to work against the expanded attack surface a remote distributed workforce inevitably presents. Second, as long as the public remains worried about the pandemic, COVID-19 phishing scams will retain their popularity. Interpol expects such phishing to go hand-in-hand with a corresponding increase in business email compromise. In both ordinary phishing and BEC attempts, the criminals can be expected to improve their social engineering game and produce increasingly plausible fish bait. And finally, once a vaccine is available against this strain of coronavirus, expect a big spike in vaccine-themed phishing, as well as industrial espionage aimed at biomedical research and production. As always, we should also expect public concern to breed plenty of misinformation. Interpol doesn't say so, but it's reasonable to assume that a large fraction of that misinformation will simply be the madness of crowds. But some smaller fraction will no doubt be deliberate, opportunistic disinformation. All right, so fess up. You're not still running Windows 7, are you? After all, it's beyond its end of life, and the FBI this week staged a mild intervention for the benefit of its more laggard private sector partners. Quote, The FBI has observed cyber criminals targeting computer network infrastructure after an operating system achieves end-of-life status, the Bureau cautioned in a private industry notification. Continuing to use Windows 7 within an enterprise may provide cyber criminals access into computer systems. As time passes, Windows 7 becomes more vulnerable to exploitation due to lack of security updates and new vulnerabilities discovered. End quote. We know. We know. It's like a public service announcement. Buckle up for safety. Stay in school, kids. But that's all good advice, too, and it's none the worse for its earnest familiarity. Sure, the Bureau says there are troubles whenever you migrate to a new operating system, but those shrink to the irritation level when you compare them to the risks of staying with the old, the creaky, the leaky, the vulnerable, and the unpatched. So do yourself a favor and upgrade. We're pulling for you. Bobby McLernan heads up the federal division at cybersecurity asset management company Exonius. He joins us to discuss how during this shutdown, federal cybersecurity is more vulnerable than ever. Today... I think the C-level executives are thinking much more dynamically and outside of that box uh, as it relates to cost. Cost today is is a big consideration because everyone's been working from home. Government employees are looking for some type of uh, recompense or some type of uh, stipend for the use of their home as it relates to work. They are utilizing assets that they've purchased with their own personal resources, Um, so reclamation, if they're called back to work as a concern for a C-level exec. And I think as well, production. The C-level executives are starting to look at themselves more like an industry, like a big company. How do Mm -hmm. I get production from people to accomplish my goals in the same manner as when they were working on-prem? What are some of the specific adjustments they've had to make on the cybersecurity side of things? So um, 
as it relates to cyber, with uh, employees going out and purchasing uh, their own assets, I think it's an extraordinary challenge for the C-level execs now to manage those assets. In other words, which assets are out there without the appropriate agents? Which assets are out there without the appropriate software revs on their, on their equipment and patching and so forth? So as it relates to locking down the endpoint and yet keeping continuity with the workforce, I think this brings uh, a lot of new issues to the table for cyber. Hmm. As we settle into this and we start to look towards what things might look like on the other side, um, how do you suppose these folks are preparing for that, for the the notion of people coming back to work in, in this new reality? I can tell you that social distancing is a big concern. I, From what I understand, they are looking to re-architect workspaces to put the appropriate uh, distance between employees. I've also heard that... Um, in, in many cases, the air filtration systems are being looked at to try and put some type of uh, biohazard, the same type of apparatus that goes into a uh, home HVAC to keep mold down, things of that nature, mm. something to mm-hmm. purify the air and, and make the work environment safer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So those are two examples. Um, but I, I heard them from a couple of different sources, and I I think that the social distancing thing is going to be, or, or that, that type of uh, approach is going to be significant going forward. Because from what I understand, COVID may reoccur in the fall. And I've read several times in the paper that uh, there may be the advent of swine flu uh, crossing borders here uh, in, the, in the coming months. So I, I really believe that people are going to be in a different work environment than they have in the past. That's Bobby McLernan from Exonius. And finally, the AP says that 17-year-old Graham Ivan Clark, the youth accused of participating in the Twitter hack and its attendant altcoin scam scheme, was arraigned Monday in Florida on state charges of fraud. He pled not guilty and, of course, is entitled to the customary presumption of innocence. The Wall Street Journal has the story the prosecutors told of how Master Clark allegedly did it, He started with a SIM swap to get access to a plausible phone number. He also set up a few bogus sites as landing places for his phishing pages and then collected the right logos and text to make them plausible. One of the pages was designed to look like Twitter's Okta login portal through which employees securely enter Twitter's systems. The journal points out that Okta itself was uncompromised. The sites were pure imposture. And then he called Twitter admins, some of the roughly 3,000 who have access to Twitter's account control panels. He said he was from IT, directed them to the phishing pages, and convinced enough of them to cough up their credentials to give him the ability for an hour or so to wrench control of more than 100 accounts, mostly high-value and high-profile accounts. An interesting aspect of the story is the connection to online gaming. According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, The tactics that Mr. Clark allegedly used have been honed in recent years with remarkable tenacity by a community of teenagers and young adults. The practitioners cut their teeth in the antics of online gaming, where stealing one another's Xbox or PlayStation gaming accounts is counted as a harmless prank, according to investigators and security experts. So the Internet's notorious disinhibition misdirects another youth. In cyberspace, it can seem as if sufficiently artful wishing makes it so. 
Until that is, you forget that cyberspace eventually meets real life. In real life, you have liberty, but within the framework of physical possibility. And in real life, you have rights. In this case, unfortunately, one of them is the right to remain silent. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, got an interesting bit of research uh, that was shared with us. This is from the Satori Threat Intelligence and Research Team over at White Ops Security. Uh, Joe, they have found some uh, chicanery, some some <laughs> some some bad stuff going over going on over on the Google Play Store. Can you describe to us uh, what, what does their research delve into here? Right. So they have discovered twenty nine apps with code that facilitates what they call out-of-context ads. And these are ads that will pop up on your phone when you're not in some app. It's just like you'll be looking at your home screen, and then, bam, you get an ad on on your phone. Let me, uh, let, let me stop phone. you right there, Joe, yeah. because, you know, one of my favorite pastimes is giving you a hard time about Android because yes. I'm an iPhone user. I know. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was looking at the animation that they posted here in their research of how these ads work. And it's just someone sort of browsing through their list of apps. And all of a sudden, this ad pops up. And I'm thinking to myself, you're okay with this? Right. Why this, is this even this, a thing that can be done <laughs> on the Android platform? If my, if my phone did this, I would throw it out the window. Right. Yeah, and no app should do this. And, and actually, that's a good point, Dave. I don't think that the, that the operating system should allow this to occur. Yeah, um, there may be some legitimate use case where this is a good idea, but I can't think of it right now. Um, <laughs> so if somebody can, if somebody can come up with a legitimate use case, uh, 
let me know. I would love to hear it. Um, <laughs> okay. Getting rid of that functionality from the operating system would, would stop a lot of this from happening. But there are still other means of pushing ads that that actually do represent uh, legitimate use cases like push notifications, right? You might want push yeah. notifications for, say, incoming weather that may affect you. Uh, right, so right. there's there's an easy to identify legitimate use case for those. Uh, but yeah, those can still be abused for ads. But what's interesting is that these apps had 3.5 million downloads among them. That's an average of about 120,000 downloads per app. Mm-hmm. Um and many of these apps were purporting to be a, a blur app, which is uh, an, a photo editing app that will let you blur out portions of a photo. So let's say you take mm. a picture of your new car, you want to blur out the license plate, this is what you would use, something like this. But these apps okay. don't do that. They have very minimal functionality that's just enough to get past the uh, automated tests for the Google Play Store. And then they do a lot of, uh, a lot of hinky things. Like, for example, the very first paragraph of this article says, if the app you just downloaded is playing hide-and-seek with you, like the icons disappearing from your home screen, it might be bogus. If the only way you can open this app is by going to your settings menu and finding it in the long list of apps, it might be bogus. And if after you download this app, your phone starts to give you these these, uh, out-of-context ads, it might be bogus, right? Mm. Another interesting telltale sign, and this is one of the things I've said before, but they talk about this in the reviews. These reviews have what they call a C-shaped distribution, right? Mm. Which means that if you look at the distribution, there's a lot of five stars, very few four, three, and two-star ratings, and then a lot of one-star ratings. So it kind of looks like the letter C, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that is indicative of a malicious app or or well, a, mm. an app that's just going to serve ads. Uh, because? Because... These people go out and they buy reviews. And when you buy reviews, you don't buy two-star, three-star, or four-star reviews. You buy five-star reviews. Right. And these guys have bought a bunch of five-star reviews. And when you produce a piece of software that is just a nuisance, it creates a bunch of angry people who then go in and give you a bunch of one-star reviews. So Mm -hmm. that's what you're going to see. You're going to see the five-star reviews that they've purchased and the one-star reviews that they've earned. So if you see that, let that be a, a message, a warning to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, could you put a, 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 an app, how many downloads would you get if you just stuck an app, somehow got an app in in, in the Google Play Store or, or any of these online stores, and, and if the app was called, this app does nothing, right? right? Would you still get over 100,000 downloads just because, I, I mean, I guess there are people out there who just download anything. Right. right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, that I, is uh, a mystery to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I I don't go out and just download any app. I, I I go with a specific purpose for looking for a functionality that I want to have, and then mm-hmm. I read the reviews before I install it. And then finally, when I if I do choose to install it, I check the permissions that it that it requests. So mm-hmm. think about these things. Think about the permissions you're giving away. Uh, read the reviews and look for that C shaped distribution. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, this is uh, from the Satori Threat Intelligence and Research Team over at White Ops. Uh, the research is called Bringing Blur Apps into Focus. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.